Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm your Dana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Beta, daf Lamitet, page 39. Well, we're really in the home stretch here. We hope many of you will be joining us tomorrow for our Siyam. There's still time to get the link if you're listening to this Motzei Shabbat. Um, and with that, I think we'll just get straight to the top. But we look forward to finishing Masachet Beta with you and then on to Masachet Rosh Hashanah. So on this stuff, we have two Mishnahs. Each of us is each one of us is going to take a Mishnah. And this Mishnah here, it sort of feels like the Mishnahs here are just sort of getting in any random halacha about Yom Tov that they can get in. So a coal that let's say was borrowed on Yom Tov is as the feet of its owner. In other words, let's say, Anne, I needed to borrow coal from you. The tahum for that coal is going to be for you, not my tuchum, right? But a flame, in other words, let's say I walked to your house and said, I didn't have a candle lit, or I forgot to put up my yurtzeh candle, and I needed to light a flame, a flame is anywhere. And the Mepharshim explain because it doesn't really have substance. It's not really something. If somebody uses a coal of consecrated uh, property, right, for a non-consecrated purpose, basically, then he is, will be, you know, he's guilty of basically doing uh, me'ila, right? Where you would have to bring the value of the property plus a fifth. But let's say you use a consecrated flame, right? You can't derive benefit from it, okay? But but it's not misuse. You wouldn't be chayab for me'ila because again, it's a flame. It's not really an object. It doesn't really have substance. Hamotzi gachelet. We were shoot harabim. Let's say somebody carries a coal into a shoot harabim. Chayav, they're chayav, right? So in other words, they care from a private, you know, reshuda yachid, a private domain to a public domain. On Shabbat, they're chayav, right, for carrying. The shall have it pator. But if you carried a flame, you would be pator. Now, how would you actually carry a flame? So that's sort of interesting. So then the Gemara goes on and says, Tanu Rabbanan, Chamishad Vrim, so there were five things, this is a tosepta of beta that were taught with regards to coal. So that's the first one, the coal is like, follows the tukum of its owner. Right? But a flame can be brought anywhere. Again, the same concept of meila that we have in our Mishnah. If you have a coal that was somehow used in Avodah it's a sort of used. But a flame would be mutar. Again, the same halacha we had in our Mishnah about carrying. So let's say somebody makes a vow saying they cannot get benefit from their friend, right? He is not allowed to use, uh, or, or he's not allowed to use um, that person's coal but he could use his flame, right? Okay, so very, very interesting. Um, so the Gemara has a couple questions, like why are you allowed to use a flame of Avodah Zarah, you know, and what, you know, why would that, and what's different with a Hekdesh flame that it would, you know, that it would be uh, prohibited lechatchila, right? In other words, that's a good question. Why can you use one for Avodah Zarah? Hekdesh one, you're not, you know, you shouldn't benefit from it but it's not really considered me'ila. And so the Gemara basically says, because Jews don't really like to do Avodah Zarah, so they didn't need to add on this extra layer. But when it came to Hegdesh property, they needed to add on this extra, um, they had to add on this extra layer there. 
But then the Gemara goes on to a very interesting discussion here. So the Gemara says, but don't we have another Bryce that teaches that actually if you do carry a flame, you are Chayav. So Rav Sheshit said that Bryce is talking about where you carried a flame in a wooden chip. So the issue isn't that you carried the flame. The issue is that you carried the chip itself. So then the Gemara says, okay, so maybe we really should learn the halacha of Shalhebet from carrying this wooden chip. And having the flame is not anything at all. Um, right? So the Gemara says that the Brisa sort of is talking about a chip that doesn't have the sort of the minimum measurement that we would need to say that you're high for carrying something. Did not. Right? Because remember, we learned in Masachat Shabbat that if you carried out wood on Shabbat, how much wood? Remember, it gave all those measurements of how much of something, and it had to be to do a malacha with it. So it needed to be enough wood that you could carry a cook, uh, uh, an egg with it. But let's say you have a wooden chip that's too small that you couldn't cook an egg with it, right? Technically, you wouldn't really be high for carrying it, but you are high for it if it has a flame attached to it. And that's sort of like the chiddush uh, here. And so what I thought was interesting about this is, is that I think it's bringing up actually an issue within the mission itself in a certain way, which is like, how could you carry a flame without it being attached to something? Like it needs to burn off of something. And so then Abaye has a different, you know, sort of scenario here. Kugon lemana mishcha nura. So Lamisha is talking about actually when you have a vessel and you smear it with oil and lit it on fire and carry it out that way. So the Gemara says, okay, so we should derive it from there. And there what? You should be high for carrying out the vessel. So the Gemara says the Mishnah is talking about a fire that's in an earthenware shard. And it's not the whole vessel and you wouldn't be high for that because it wouldn't be the whole uh, shard. So therefore, that's the type of flame that you would be um, that you would be patur from carrying, but again, I think they have to do some mental gymnastics here because how do you carry a flame without it being uh, without it being uh, you know um, without it being attached to something? So then the gemara again says, Okay, so let's say we'll learn this out actually that you're high for carrying because of this case of the earthenware. But delay slayshir. So again, it says, well, wasn't the amount that you needed for it to be a shear. So for earthenware, it has to be enough to place between one window frame for another. That's how small the shard has to be, right? And that's the statement of Rabbi Yehuda. So in the Gemara says, so if, the, but, so like, if this is true, right, that you should be high up for carrying it out, whatever the flame is attached to an object, Right. Uh, so, but we just learned Amotzi shall have a patur. But we just learned if you carry flame, you're actually patur. Right. So, how is it that you, you know, what, what, how, what is this actual case? Because again, it doesn't make sense. How can you have a flame that's not attached to anything? So the missionary here is talking about where you fan the fire with your hand, so it spreads into the public domain. So the only case they can come up with is basically like you're in your Rishus Hayachid. And I guess you like flame it, you know, like you, you 
you know, wave your hand against the flame and it sort of like jumps over. But I still don't understand this because like, would it travel Arba Amot? Now, again, I don't have enough time to go through this in detail. But what I was taken by here is, is that I think the Gemara sort of is acknowledging that this statement of the Mishnah really doesn't make sense to them. They cannot really find a case of how you could carry a flame without it being attached to something. And once it's attached to something, of course, then you should be chayav for carrying that object. Um, yes. I feel like this is another one of these, like, um, let's put all the pieces together. Kind of like, let's, I don't mean this seriously, but like, there's so many details of, in so many different component parts. Let's throw up all the pieces in the air and let's then let them fall. And now we're going to put the puzzle together. Maybe it doesn't... Maybe if we sat and did Eun on the stuff, it wouldn't feel that way. I, it's definitely possible. But I do think that there's a lot of component parts getting to the halachot here. Right. And I just, you know, I, I think it's a, it's an it's an interesting discussion here. And I just wanted to note it. All right. Next Mishnah, Anne. Next Mishnah. Okay. Bor shel yachid. If you've got a bor, a pit, a cistern, and it's owned by one person. As we've been talking about, that you know, the any water that is drawn from that well, let's call it a well, um, can only go as far as the limitations, the travel limitations of that person, the owner, would have been allowed to walk. But if it's a well, a bore that's owned by, or that's that belongs to the public, really, right, to everybody in the city, then it can, it has the limitations of everybody so on the one hand that's less limiting and on the other hand really would have to pay attention to a great deal of you know how far can you really go with it and again i'm going to ask what i know is kind of a klutz kasha but like how far are these people really trying to travel with water are they going on you know a long hike on yantif like i I don't fully understand the application of this unless you unless there's some kind of like right if we think that they could go tchum tchum is pretty big you know because pretty far when we, you know, we spent all that time in Erev and talking about just how far you could go and from what point in the city do we measure it, it's not like to your neighbor's yard, right? Like it's much, much, much further than that. So this is my question that I'm not going to get an answer to. Um, and then, so this I find to be very interesting. Uh, they'd say the water that is drawn from a pit or well, from those who came from er- came to Israel from Babylonia, meaning it's a public well. And it says the feet, right? How far could you go? The feet of whoever fills his vessel in that water, right? Meaning there's no defined limitation here because it was made public, like meaning anybody can come and take it. It's not just the people from the city and it's not privately owned. So once you say anybody could take it, then you don't have a limitation on how far that water can go because anybody is so broad right it's a much further kind of thing so all of this is you know the fact that there is a a group of people right a class of people that they think of as those who came from babylonia and and they have to make the water available to them in a much more kind of public way than you might think just the just those in the city so now if we look at the gemara the gemara is very interested in these people and what's really going on here i'm jumping a little bit just missing the very first the very beginning of the the Gemara here, so it cites the Mishnah, and then it says, Itamar, let's say, somebody fills his, his vessel 
his container and he gives it to a friend, right? Meaning if he gives it to his friend, then, then the question of who, ha let me say this right. Meaning the Ole, the, the person who came from Bavel to Eretz Yisrael, he has the right to take it from that water to wherever. But can somebody who is not in that same class of people, but who really lives there, right? Now he gives them his water. Can that person go as far as the, the person from Bavel could have gone, right? Rav Nachman Amar Kiraglei Mei Shenit Malulo Rav Sheshit Amar Kiraglei Hamimale. So it's a machloka between Rav Nachman and Rav Sheshet. That shouldn't surprise us. They often have disputes. Rav Nachman says that the you, the water, you can move it as far as a person for whom it was filled. Meaning, even though the guy who did the filling of the of the container um, has his own limitations, his own definitions, it's going to follow. He did it for his friend, so it's going to follow the limitations of that that the person who receives this water. And Rav Sheshet says like the feet of the person who did the filling, right? Meaning once you're the one approaching the water, then you are the one who's going to, like we're going to define the distance so you can walk with the water um, according to that. So then the Gemara says, it's, to me, it's very interesting, right? We're going to probe this machloka between Rav Nachman and Rav Sheshit to understand why they say different things. It's really, Yordana, I know you like to say classic Gemara fashion. This is like, the crux of it. Let's unpack the machloka. Let's find the 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 locus of their dispute. What are they disagreeing about? So one of them, and we can define here that the the first one discussed here is Rav Sheshet, right? One of the sages says that the public um, well is ownerless. Right, and then once it's ownerless, you can't really take possession of it on behalf of someone else. You can only take possession of it on behalf of yourself, right? So then the water belongs, quote unquote, belongs, right, to the person who who um, who filled the container, right? And so then that's why it has to follow according to his feet. So right, the the Gemara first says we've got Rav Nachman's view and Rav Sheshet's view, and then it first explains Rav Sheshet's view. The idea being that since the water doesn't have an owner, then you can't acquire it for the next person owner. You over, sorry, you can you, for the next person over. You can only acquire it for yourself. But then Marsavar, but then Rav Nachman says, one second, it's a public well. He considers it to be owned not by nobody but by everybody, right? All of the people who might come to take from this well, which you know in also in classic Gemara fashion, we're going to understand that means all the Jewish people, meaning they're all welcome to come take. And so if everybody is welcome to come take, then it makes sense that you could draw on behalf, of, you could take water, fill the container on behalf of somebody else. And then the distance that that water can go is exactly for that person for whom the water was, was taken from the well. So on the one hand, I would say like, this is a really, important practical difference if in fact there really is a difference how far anybody was really trying to walk and but i think more substantively perhaps we've got this kind of philosophical understanding of what happens to property that is available to everybody you know is it because it's ownerless so then whoever comes claims it and then you know whoever gets there first gets to claim it or there's no such concern because really everybody of the jewish people is you know gets to own it to begin with um and so 
this discussion, meaning the, the whole question of these people who came from Babylonia, continues really through the rest of the daf until the, there's a mission at the very end of the daf, but we're going to save that till tomorrow. But I just want to mention one other tiny bit here, um, because there's a once we're talking about the people who came from fr- came to Eretz Israel from Babylonia, we get a whole long list of items that were coming to Israel from Babylonia. These are the things that they brought, meaning these are the publicly owned items. And then we can apply Rav Nachman's and Rav Sheshit's machloket on onto this. Har habayit. So they they brought. This is what it says. Har habayit, the Temple Mount. Hal hal halshkaot, the chambers. Haazarot, the courtyards. Ubor shel emsa haderech, and the pit that was in the middle of the road. And the things that were jointly owned by the people who lived there, as opposed to be publicly, as opposed to being open to the public, you've got the street and the shul, the synagogue, Beit Knesset, and the Beit Hamerchatz, the bathhouse. So this piece I find to be really dramatic and fascinating that it's it presents it as like those who came from Babylonia now have their portion in these items, they're not items, these locations, these the aspects of property that we think are really connected to the Beit HaMikdash, um, which is, I, I, I don't know, Yordana, do you have anything you want to add on this? Yeah, I think it's just interesting to see that there's sort of like Jewish communal property that isn't owned by anybody. That's just what struck me about this stuff. I like that they kind of, they somehow there's a need to categorize, like this apply, this is for the public good all of these temple type temple type things right from the temple mount to the courtyards to the boar in the middle of the in the road like to say that all of that is simply public work so to speak meaning publicly owned as compared to jointly owned by those who are residents of the city which is much more like uh, daily use right the street the shul the bathhouse as opposed to that which is much more distant from the you know, Joe Average on the street because it's really the domain of the Kohanim. I, I feel like, again, this is one of those things where with time for Iyun, I would delve into this to understand it a bit better. In the meantime, you know, I just want to note that the the Gemara tracks the Machloket, Rav Nachman's position throughout the rest of the daf to see, like, how does it up, how does it hold up, you know, under different circumstances, which begins, you know, talking about Korban Nod, and Masrot, Masr Behema. Um, yes. Meaning, that in and of itself would be an interesting podcast episode, but we only have one for this one daf. Right. So I think, yeah, we, we don't, just don't have enough time for it. And then I think with that, we have one daf left. Well, that's our daf discussion for the day. Rankus Reviews on our major podcast. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow,